millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Before we begin today, I must thank new donor, Mehmet, who will hereafter be known as Mehmet the Reminder, since he reminded me that I needed a Patreon page. So thanks to Mehmet, those of you who still so choose can go to the website, Wittenberg to Westphalia at Weebly.com, and go to the store page, and then click on the link to Patreon. Once there, you can choose to become a recurring donor at any level you so choose. This means that any time I release an episode, the amount that you choose will be deducted from your bank account, and will be put into mine at which point I will use it to keep the lights on, feed my child, and buy alcohol. Usually people have goals and rewards for Patreon donors. As you probably know by now, I'm no good at thinking that far ahead, and my current release rate is probably as good as I can get for the foreseeable future. But I have something in the works, and if we can get up to 20 patrons, I will announce a special reward. While you are at the website, you will notice a link at the top of the episode's blog for a short survey. I tried to make it enjoyable, so please take it. It would really help me out. So if you want to do all those things, head on over to wittenberg com to do all those things. Thanks in advance. Next item of business. As you know, this show is brought to you in part by the Agora Podcast Network. This month's podcast of the month is... Me! Oh, glory days. To celebrate, I've been included on the Agora Podcast Network's The Exchange. If you go to iTunes and look up the Agora Podcast Network, you'll find the Agora Podcast Network feed, and you'll be able to find me being interviewed by American Biography's Thomas Daly, which is quite exciting, and it was a lot of fun to do. In addition, if you like spooky things, you will note that this month is October, and as a way to celebrate October... The Agora Podcast Network has put together Agoraphobia, a series of four shows about scary things relating to the home area or region of the various podcasts in the Agora Podcast Network. I did a section on Rhode Island that just posted, so check that out too. And now on with the show. See here the lessons which teach preparation of all manners of meats. Firstly, of all manner of meats and the sauces which are appropriate to them, like pork, veal, mutton, beef, and after, of smaller meats, like kid, lamb, and piglet, and after, of all manner of game birds, like cranes, grouse, herons, moorhens, coots, non-soleil, cormorants, partridges, turtle doves, wild hens, plover, and all the sauces which are appropriate to them, and after, of civets of chicks, hares and rabbits, 
and of all civets and brutes, and soups that one is able to make of them, and after of salt water and fresh water fish, and all the sauces which are able to be made in all forms. Quote from Insignments, qui insignment apparelio totes manires de viandes. Hope I said that right. And the 2005 translation by David Myers. And read by Thomas Daly of the American Biography Podcast. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is a very special episode number 23, the second anniversary special. This past year has positively flown by, and it was October 1st before I knew it was happening. October is a particularly auspicious month this year, because not only is it the month in which I first started the show, it is also the month in which I am being featured on Agora. Hooray! So to celebrate, and to welcome any new listeners... I'm going to take a pause from the narrative and once again address a topic that is tangential to the show's main focus, but which I find fascinating. Last year I did an episode on the history of Andorra, and I am still told from time to time that it was one of my best episodes. So hopefully you will find this episode equally interesting. This year's topic was suggested by a longtime listener and Knight of the Realm, David von Weaselballs, who asked me to discuss the types of food eaten in the Middle Ages and maybe give a recipe. This is a really great idea from a bunch of different angles. First, addressing this now means I won't be tempted to address it in the narrative, which will help me keep on point for a few upcoming episodes. This is a big deal because, number two, I love the history of food, and I think it's vitally important. It's something of a cliché that you can learn a lot about a culture through their food, and I know many find this line of reasoning irritating. I know that just going out to your local Chinese restaurant does not give you keen insight into Chinese culture. But for a conscious eater who does their research and is not overly bound by their inherited cultural biases about cuisine, ethnic restaurants are a great way to push one's boundaries and to help a person see out of a different set of eyes. Such culinary adventures tell us not only about the general culture of a place and time, but also about the material culture. The availability of ingredients can tell us about the geography, the climate, and the density of trade networks cooking technique tells us about the type of consumer goods available to the different social classes and the time those classes are willing to put into food preparation. Of course, you can't get all this just from ordering off a menu, but it's a good step in the right direction. The above points are doubly valuable when applied to historical cuisines, particularly when one is working with Western cultures whose stories are somewhat well-trodden and where there are cultural similarities to modern listeners. It's all too easy to project our values backwards, to feel like people in the past were just like us. In many ways, they were. We're all homo sapiens sapiens here. We love our children and the people closest to us, and we all need to eat food. More broadly, for my Western listeners, the stuff that grows in Europe today was capable of growing there in the past. But in many ways, we're so very different from those in the past. On a cultural level, the understandings of science and religion and our role in the world intrude into daily life in unexpected ways, and the differences in material culture lead to surprising outcomes in everyday life. Now, there's been a lot of mythology built up around the cuisine of the Middle Ages, mostly created by those who want to look down on the era. 
I'm not going to spend a lot of time debunking these myths because other podcasts do a decent job of this and because I think repeating these myths, even to debunk them, gives them too much power. Instead, I would like to begin by asking you to put a pin in all your preconceived notions, be they positive or negative, and then ask yourself a very simple question. Let's say you're a peasant in central France in the Middle Ages. What are you going to eat for dinner? Some of you may have an answer already, possibly because you're feeling hungry, but let's put a pin in that too and begin defining our parameters. Let's assume it's a good year from an agricultural perspective, around the year 1010. The worst political chaos of the early Middle Ages are dying away, and in your home in the Morvan Highlands, you have been more or less left alone by the more ambitious lords. It's also important that we specify dinner, because the church discouraged gluttony, and it was felt to be sinful to eat more than one real meal in a day. Small amounts of food would of course be eaten when the peasant woke up in the morning, and sometimes later in the day as well, but these were often described in our sources as a morsel, and may not have constituted more than what we might call a small snack. So given that this was their only real meal, what did peasants of this time eat for dinner? Answering this question has actually proved devilishly difficult, as modern historians and archaeologists have put more and more effort into the task. The big issue is, as is so often the case, that literate people of the time did not waste much ink on domestic tasks, and even less on the poor. So what little we have in the way of cookbooks from the period detail the lives of the rich and powerful, and not your average jock. As a result, historians have basically two options for coming up with evidence cobble together a picture of what the poor ate from incidental mentions and other materials, and or try to build something coherent from the evidence of archaeology. Within the documentary history, there are a few key flashpoints for historians. First, some historians feel that in the Middle Ages, the gap between rich and poor was not that wide, uh, based on some of the passing mentions in legal records and church documents, and so these folks feel we can use at least some of the cookbooks we have. Other historians disagree, and I tend to fall in with this camp, although I'm no ideologues, we'll see a bit later. Partly I feel this way based on the archaeology. The houses from the early Middle Ages that we have excavated are maybe not as bad as some historians have made out in the past, but by any modern standard, they were terrifyingly primitive. It's not just that all the cooking was done by fire. It's that until the High Middle Ages, that fire was lit in a hole in the ground, at least for the majority of the peasants. There was no hearth beyond a ring of stones around the fire, and no chimney. The heat was not concentrated or regulated, there was just fire. There were no ovens, and as we are talking about poor people, we should not expect more than a few pots and pans that were suspended over the fire on uh, tripods. Or some of them had their own legs. Honestly, from what I've read, a peasant with both a pot and a pan was probably pretty comfortable in the grand scheme of things. Even for these families, starvation was a constant menace, something we can see in the human remains, which have high infant mortality rates and evidence of malnutrition. When we're talking about people this desperately poor, the complex and highly spiced dishes written about in the surviving cookbooks are, on the face of them, absurd. Peasants weren't importing peacocks and stuffing them full of expensive spices. Even the concept of separate dishes may be something of an anachronism. The point is that the family of the medieval peasant can't prepare any food that requires expensive ingredients, or preparation methods more complex than that which can be done with a pot and a pan, and the pan might just be a big flat rock. So spices that came from the Far East, rice and sugar, were not in the pantry, at least not in Europe. 
While we're on the subject, there are a number of other items that we're going to have to strip out of your mental meal prep. Because of the date of 1010, you are going to have to eat without anything introduced after the Columbian Exchange of 1492. In other words, the crops that moved to the Old World after the first establishment of European colonies in the Western Hemisphere. This is an alarmingly long list. Chocolate and tobacco are well known to be New World products, but fewer people think of the long list of vegetables, as includes almost all of the nightshade family, whose only members in the Old World before the exchange were known poisons. They are sometimes used as pharmaceuticals and cosmetics as well, but that's a, that's a tangent. The nightshade family of crops from the New World includes tomatoes, potatoes, peppers of any kind other than black pepper, cashews, and many, many others. Corn, a.k.a. maize, are on the list of Colombian exchange items as well, as are all the squashes, which means that there were no pumpkins in Europe before 1492, and also no butternut squash or zucchini. There are a number of fruit that we are familiar with today whose European ancestors no longer grace our tables for the most part. For example, commercially grown strawberries are derived from the North American varietals, which are more hardy and easier to produce in mass quantities. Uh, similarly, most table grapes are based on the North American varietals. Old world grapes, which tend to be somewhat hard to grow and are extremely prone to spoilage, are usually saved for winemaking. I'll stop myself here, but I could spend a really inordinate amount of time on this. The amount of crops that were procured from the Columbian Exchange is truly mind-boggling. It may not seem like a big deal until you start trying to think of a meal you recently consumed without any of the items on this list. Before I close on this line of thought, though, we should also understand that any kind of chemical leavening agent was not widespread at this time. In other words, if you needed baking powder or baking soda for a dish, sorry. So any kind of muffin, or what we would call cake today, or cupcake, these weren't on the menu. Some early forms of chemical leavening were starting to make their rounds by the end of the Middle Ages, but they were often expensive and hard to come by. So all breads before that had to be risen via the actions of yeast or steam. Let's return to our main question. What will you, a medieval peasant, have for dinner? There are no New World foods, and many of the foods from the East were too expensive. Anything that requires baking at a constant temperature could be very difficult to produce. This can be a pretty grim outlook, so let's take the opposite viewpoint. Let's start by talking about what was available to a peasant family, at least during the proper season. The main staples were grain, but I would like to hold off on talking about grains for a few minutes. Instead, let's start right outside the front door. Most families had gardens where vegetables and fruits were grown for private use. This included turnips, parsnips, peas and beans, cabbages, lettuce, all in a bewildering local variety. There were also apples, pears, plums, melons, and many others. Incidentally, the lowly garden snail was a prized find. The peasantry also raised a variety of animals, though this did not necessarily translate into meat consumption. Sheep and cows were simply too valuable, either as something to sell to the nobility or in terms of their wool and dairy production, to consume. Oxen and horses were vital draft animals. Chickens were needed for their eggs, and were eaten only when their egg-laying days dwindled. Waterfowl were sometimes available, but again, these were often better used by selling them on to the upper classes. Still, protein was available. The very products like milk and eggs that made animals too valuable to eat provided much of the nutrition of the Middle Ages. As we've discussed before, cheesemakers were highly honored persons, and huge swaths of the European economy were turned over to the production of dairy. Butter was 
in Northern Europe at least, a necessary product to provide fat and protein in the peasant's diet, and had the advantage of being relatively easy to make at home once you got enough milk. Pigs are the odd critter out here. Living recycling machines, pigs produced no usable secondary products, but they did convert things inedible for humans, like trash and acorns, into edible meat. In so doing, they simultaneously helped keep the village somewhat hygienic, while also providing nutrition. How much of that nutrition remained local, and how much was sold on to the upper classes is worth asking. I don't have a clear answer, but I suspect that it is some, but not much. Further afield, the peasants in most villages had access to uncultivated areas. This could be the fallow part of the field rotation system. It could also be road verges or true woodlands. Up until recently, historians treated the woods as the eternal enemy of humanity, where dark things lurked, and times where the woods were being cleared were seen as times of prosperity. As we have learned more about the diet of the poor, that image has shifted. We now suspect that the medieval peasant relied heavily on wild areas for supplementing their diet. Particularly, we hear about the hunting of game and the fattening of pigs on acorns, but the wild places contain a plethora of food if you know what you're looking for. Fallow fields would have supplied a wide variety of herbs that would help enliven the peasant's food, as well as some berries. Many of the items modern grocery shoppers pay huge premiums to obtain were, in the proper season, as easy to obtain as looking. Sorrels, tarragons, oregano, bay, rosemary, the list goes on. Transitional areas on the edge of woodlands would have provided a variety of berries, uh, while the woodlands themselves contained important nuts, fruits, roots, flavorings, and the raw materials for things we might call industrial products, like watertight roofs. Such wild areas also allowed for the raising of bees, the only real source of sugar until the early modern period. Given all of the above, the destruction of woodlands is now viewed by historians as a sign of increasing population stress. I should also mention before I move on that ponds and streams were common in most villages. They became more important as time went on for the powering of mills, but at this early stage they provided fish, eels, waterfowl, and flax for food and garments. In some villages, ponds were specifically built for fish, and in these communities the lord often owned the fish, and the peasants had to purchase them, but they were there. Of course, the main staple of the Middle Ages was not vegetables, fruit, meat, or even dairy. It was grain. There were, by the Middle Ages, a variety of grains available, and what was grown depended to a certain extent on where you were and local traditions. But it was wheat that had the prestige at that time, and it was wheat that was required in many cases to pay rent, and so wheat was grown widely, often more widely than was ecologically wise. For example, in northern climates, like in the the Nordic countries of Scandinavia, uh, they continued trying really, really hard to grow grains, even though it was climatologically impossible in many cases. And we also hear lots of stories about places that were ideal for growing uh, olives or grapes, which would have been great cash crops, but instead everyone was growing wheat. For the peasants, then, wheat was a factor in the diet, but so was barley, rye, millet, farrow, and especially oats. Rice was not yet available in mainland Europe, though it may have arrived in southern Spain around this time. These different cereal crops often went to different uses. Millet and oats were generally considered to be animal feed by polite society, which was, of course, a convenient way for polite society to look down on those who ate it. 
Nonetheless, in more northerly climes, these grains fared much better than wheat, and so wise farmers who didn't want to starve to death grew a variety of things, with the specific mix often being as much a product of local traditions and conditions as personal initiative. Though wheat was prestigious, most peasants probably ate the whole gamut of grains, depending on the time of year and what was available, and these staples constituted the mainstay of the diet. They spent most of their lives tending to the fields where these plants grew, obsessing over the conditions under which they were growing, and generally living and dying by how well these grains were doing. Much smaller personal gardens were devoted to vegetables and fruits, which were also important parts of the diet, but in no way made up the majority of the calories. These grains were eaten in a variety of ways. The most obvious to the modern listener of European descent, or at least familiar with modern European culture, would be bread, and this was indeed likely the vast majority of the peasants' calories. But if you're paying attention, you'll probably notice something odd. I said earlier that the peasants' houses did not have ovens, and this is true. And yet the majority of the peasants' diet consisted of something that we would recognize as loaves of bread. Certainly some bread-making was done in the home, using the family pot as a vessel, or else being made in the form of flatbreads and pancakes cooked on the family rock, or pan if they had them. For most of human history, these flatbreads were the way that bread was made, and indeed, even at the, this time of that we're talking about, most of the agricultural societies in the world produced bread in such a manner. But Europe was different. Most of the bread in the village was made outside the home, at the village bakery. Here, the lord of the manor put up the funds necessary to build a large, permanent brick or ceramic oven, which one of the villagers was allowed to rent. That villager, in turn, got a village monopoly over the production of bread. This is a fairly peculiar system, both because it did not exist in other parts of the world, and because the people involved in it felt so bound to it that they didn't even question its most basic assumption. Sure, people would try and bake at home, and we actually have legal records for people who are sometimes in trouble for baking bread at home. That whole village monopoly, don't you know? So people fought the system, sure, but no one ever said, like, why don't we just not eat bread? It's not like they didn't have options, even if they stuck to a cereal-based diet. Most breads consumed in the world are flatbreads, like I said, or tortillas, or the like... But peasants of Europe were still part of the Roman culinary tradition. And somewhere along the way, the Greek invention of risen, fluffy loaves of bread became deeply ingrained in Roman culture. Bread is intertwined with religious practice and culture in Europe. And even after the empire fell and the people fled the cities and were living on the edge of starvation in the countryside, they needed bread. This goes far to explain some of the peculiarities of the European medieval village, which was despite being in the middle of the countryside, in the middle of nowhere, a quite urban place, quite tightly packed, and the people who lived in it were very interdependent. But that's a topic for another show. For now, let's end our discussion of bread by saying that the dense loaves of multigrain bread were to the peasants of Europe what the rice was to the peasants of Asia and the yogurt was to the peasants of the Balkans. It's not really a meal by itself, but it's so vital to the meal that its absence was bewildering and threatening. We have one last grain-based food item to discuss, something that all medievalists agree was absolutely vital to the peasant diet, and the middle-class diet, and the upper-class diet. This dish was in fact so vital that, despite what I said earlier, it very clearly transcended class lines, and was probably the most universal food item of the Middle Ages. 
I'm speaking, of course, about gruel. You can also call it pottage, porridge, stew, or soup. It's all basically the same thing. The concept is this. You take a pot. You put it over the fire. You put in whatever bones or scraps of meat you have around and boil them in water. You then take out the bones, or possibly grind them up. You maybe add in organ meats, or whatever scraps of meat you have around. Then you add cracked grain, root vegetables, beans, and cabbage. Then you simmer it all together, all day, while you work in the fields. There are a number of huge advantages to this dish. It pulls the maximum possible nutrition out of the meat. It's very filling, despite being mostly water. And because it's mostly water, it will not burn so long as it is stirred occasionally, something you can have a young or elderly relative take care of. If it's watery enough, it may not even need that level of attention. This is all in contrast to, say, spit roasting or frying foods, where nutrients are lost either through being locked up in bones or lost by being stuck and burnt to the pan or dripping off the meat into the fire. After a day or more of simmering, this gruel would be a thick, nutritious sauce. It was, of course, served with bread, large, thick, tough slices called trenchers that served in the place of plates or bowls. The gruel would be ladled onto the trencher, which soaked up the broth, making a nice, tasty meal. This kind of meal is attested in almost all the sources we have as being common amongst people of all classes, so long as they could afford the bread, and so it is often heavily emphasized in many traditional reconstructions of medieval cuisine. This can tend to paint a picture of medieval cuisine as monotonous and slightly revolting, because we're basically talking about everything boiled to death and homogenized. And when, at the end of the day, you were done with the meal, you didn't, you know, put the rest in Tupperware and throw it in the fridge. You kept it simmering, and then the next day you just topped it up with more of whatever you had lying around. And then you'd go out to the fields. Certainly ideas of medicine and morality at the time of the Middle Ages did not encourage a lot of variety in food. As such, feasting was considered gluttonous, and food that was well-boiled was thought to be easier to digest. And anyway, modern archaeological evidence of high infant mortality rates and rampant malnutrition would seem to suggest that the peasantry were never able to afford much more than gruel anyway. But it is very possible to overemphasize this. Let's start with the archaeological evidence first. Despite the clear evidence of malnutrition, it's likely that this is the result of feast and famine cycles caused by the changing seasons and the relative agricultural conditions year to year. So during the summer and fall, it's likely that food was abundant. During the winter and the spring, before the first crops matured, peasants had to live off of stored food, and if they ran out, people starved. In an era before refrigeration, there were only two ways to avoid this fate. One was store a lot of food, and the other, which was slightly less effective, was to eat a lot when it was available. The bodies and bones of such people would still bear the evidence of malnutrition during the lean periods, and the children could possibly be well-fed during the summer and fall and still succumb to the diseases of malnutrition during the winter. All this blends into the points I made about the views of science and religion. First, most peasants would probably never have heard of the views of the literate on these matters. But second, if the peasants were encouraged to be frugal with their food during the good times, well, that was only good advice given the circumstances. But that doesn't mean they ate the same thing every day, or that the food they didn't eat could always be stored. There's ample anthropological and even written evidence that feast days were in some ways timed to consume perishable food products before they went bad. 
on a more broad level, and at the risk of projecting our values backwards in time, peasants were still Homo sapiens sapiens, and if they had different expectations for their food, they still would have both the desire and the ability to vary their diet during the greener seasons. Certainly the composition of the gruel would change over time, as different food items became available to toss in the pot. But more broadly, even the poorest peasant could make pancakes on their rock if they wanted some variety, or eat fresh fruits and vegetables, or just have cheese with their bread and butter. For my money, I think the best way to think of gruel is as the medieval equivalent of a drive through or a TV dinner. Something you can do on a weeknight so that everyone is fed and you don't have to think too much. From some anthropological research I've read, in traditional societies it's pretty standard to have very basic meals most of the time, and then have one meal a week that is somewhat more involved. For the medieval peasant, many of these meals would be at home, but something that is often forgotten is the role of food in the mutual obligations of medieval society. This aspect of the life of the peasant is illuminated by the various laws and legal codes from this time. Provision was often made that lords must provide meals or snacks for their peasants, particularly if they did work for the lord, and particularly on holidays. So, when the peasants are actively working for the lord, the lord is usually required to provide some sort of morsel for the working men to keep them on their feet, particularly during the harvest time, when the hours were long and the workers were very eager to return to their own fields. There were also celebratory feasts taken at the manor house on holidays. Whatever the origins of these traditions, which we can romanticize as much as we like, most of these manors were not actually occupied by the lord, since most lords were absentee. But still, the lord was required to set up major feasts for the village on occasions like Christmas or Easter. This varied greatly by the specific location, but in most places the peasant could expect at least one blowout feast per season on the lord's dime. In addition, there were a wide variety of religious festivals, at which time the villagers themselves might pool their resources to lay in better fare than usual. So despite some thin evidence, and despite archaeological evidence that medieval peasants were often malnourished, we should not think of the medieval peasant as a bunch of sad sacks, living their entire life eating gruel and looking forward to death as an escape from the drudgery of their diet. Certainly they would have had many days of gruel, but think how we treat food today. Despite our love of good food and our uniquely expansive ability to get it, on most days and in most meals we simply make do with what we have at hand. Breakfast consists of bland cereal and milk, lunches procured at drive throughs and flavored mostly with artificial chemicals. Those of us who do not just microwave our dinners are often so stressed by our day and our concerns that we simply enjoy the opportunity to spend time with our families, or worse, spend the time staring at the TV. For most of us, we only get one or two meals a week that are really, really thoroughly enjoyed, with quality food and drink and good companionship. I tend to think the peasantry of the Middle Ages were much the same in this regard. The specific foods they ate were defined by the technology and ingredients available, and very limited by their poverty, resulting in a diet that may seem utterly alien and very full of bits and pieces. Still, in all likelihood, they took advantage of local knowledge to get a variety of ingredients that is in some ways lost to our modern world. The peasants were not the passive butt of life's great joke. They sought to do well by their families and themselves, and part of that, I think, would have required finding ways to keep food from being a total chore. Sure, on your average Thursday, they would have gathered around the gruel pot, but not all days are average, nor are they all Thursday. The reasons for their celebrations differed from our own, and the kinds of things they consumed on blowout feast days may be different. 
but the evidence does not support the view that the peasants ate nothing but rule from birth till death. In total, the image I want to paint here is not one of rosy nostalgia, nor one of abject desolation. We should pity the medieval peasant. They lived in a cruel world in which they had little say, and were often at the edge of starvation. But they had their own agency. They were smart, no matter what their betters said, and they used such resources as they had to control what they could about their lives. If no solid recipes have really survived, we can build up an image of what it may have been like. So, for all your edification, I've put together a recipe based on my own research and based on my years of amateur chefery. What is more, using modern tools, it's something you can make on a not-overly-busy Wednesday. We are already running long, but if you're interested, I have posted the recipe to the website, along with some background about how I came up with it. Keep in mind, this is my sort of personal stab at it, reconstruction. I'll also post some links to cookbooks from the time that you may find interesting if you want something a little bit more authentic, although there's nothing inauthentic about what I'm doing other than the fact that I recommend using a pressure cooker. Well, there, why not check out that survey that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, or donate to Patreon. Anyway, thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in sometime next month for another great episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.